You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. I want to talk to you this morning about this King of Glory that we've just sung about. If you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. We've been looking the last few weeks at the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man who'd been laying at the pool of Bethesda for a very long time. He'd been paralyzed, as you'd recall, for 38 years, this man, with no hope of ever being made whole again. That was, of course, until Jesus came along. And Jesus picked him and only him to heal out of hundreds of sick people that had been laying by that pool. This miraculous and gracious healing, of course, drops Jesus right into the middle of trouble with the Pharisees. So let's pick up the story in verse 8, John 5, verse 8. Jesus said to the man, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, I've mentioned previously that this healing of the paralyzed man on the Sabbath is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. From this point on, the Jews begin to openly oppose him while they secretly plot his death. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, knowing full well that it will bring on a confrontation with the Jews. Jesus is never frightened of taking on the establishment when the establishment is wrong. They are few, furious. The Jews are furious that Jesus should show such blatant disregard for the law, at least the law as they interpreted it, by working on the Sabbath. This event triggers a deep and profound discussion that Jesus has with them about his true identity, which only, of course, serves to inflame them even more against him. Now, Jesus doesn't go around upsetting people accidentally or unknowingly. When he does something to upset or to anger someone, it's with a purpose, often to expose their hypocrisy, or to pro provide a platform for him to teach a deep truth. Now I'm certain that Jesus consciously chose the Sabbath to heal this man. He could have done it any day of the week, but he deliberately did it on the Sabbath. And I'll talk more in a future message about the Sabbath, but for now I just want to give a brief context about what was so precious about the Sabbath to the Pharisees and thus why they were so angry with Jesus. Now, the Sabbath was a day of rest from work with the intention that it be a day set aside for worship. It sets the pattern for our work week even today. Six days you shall work, on the seventh you shall rest. And that's the command from God in Exodus 20, part of the Ten Commandments. 
The pattern is set that way based on the fact that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh. So our regular work is to cease for one day of the week. This command is reiterated in Deuteronomy 5 where the people are reminded to keep the Sabbath not in this case because God rested on the seventh but as a reminder that God had rescued them from merciless slavery in Egypt. Thus, the seventh day was to be set aside both for rest and for worship. Six days of work, one day for worship. Now, the Jews had added dozens of minute regulations around what did or did not constitute work on the Sabbath. None of them were actually part of God's law, but were all traditions of men. So when Jesus broke the Sabbath by healing this man, he didn't actually break any of God's laws. He only broke their traditions. But that, of course, made no difference to the Pharisees. As far as they were concerned, their additional laws were God's law. So if Jesus broke their laws, it was the same as breaking God's law. For today, though, I'm less concerned about the details of what constituted work on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees, and more about what Jesus wanted to teach in this confrontation. So pick up again in verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. As I said, Jesus consciously and deliberately chose to heal this man on the Sabbath. And it seems, based on the verb tense in the original Greek, that breaking the Sabbath was something he often did. It wasn't just a one-off occurrence. It was a regular habit for Jesus. So Jesus uses their protests and outrage as a platform to introduce them to the profound truth that he isn't just another teacher. He isn't just another miracle worker. He isn't just a self-proclaimed Messiah. He is none other than God in the flesh. That's what this passage reveals to us, and it's precisely what the Jews understood Jesus to mean by his statements. Jesus answered them, it says. Now, John doesn't tell us what it was that they said to Jesus, But based on his answer, we can make a reasonable assumption that it was similar to what they said when he turned over the tables back in the temple in chapter 2. What sign do you show us for doing these things, they said then? It was a pretty common question they had for him. Essentially, they were asking, what gives you the right to do this? They often asked Jesus for a miracle as evidence that he had the authority to do what he was doing. Although usually it was more of an indignant challenge than a question, for they weren't really looking for an answer. They were only looking to catch Jesus out. The other Gospels tell us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show a sign from heaven. And it says elsewhere, others to test him kept seeking a sign from heaven. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
That was their standard response to Jesus. They had no genuine interest in who Jesus was or what he taught. Instead, they wanted to shut him up and to shut him down. In fact, the very next day after Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, the Pharisees said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them. This is John six twenty-eight. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? What sign do you do? Are you blind? We might ask them. Didn't you see the miracle Jesus performed yesterday? Haven't you seen all the other miracles? What sort of sign does he need to do to convince you to believe in him? Do you get the impression that the Pharisees had an agenda? That they weren't genuinely interested in who Jesus was? Jesus is going to tell them anyway. With every rejection of his teaching, with every dismissal of his miracles, they were putting one more nail in the coffin of their guilt for rejecting him. Indeed, straight after healing the man born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus says within earshot of the Pharisees, who had just rejected that man's testimony, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus seems determined to leave them without excuse. So he says to them here in John 5, My father is working until now, and I am working. That raises a question. Didn't God cease from his work after six days of creation? Isn't that the whole basis of the Sabbath day? How then can Jesus say, my father is working until now? Yes, God did cease from his work of creating, but he hasn't ceased from his work of sustaining his creation. The sun shines every day. The rain waters the ground. Grass grows. Babies are born on the Sabbath. And Jesus does good works on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Works of mercy are always permitted on the Sabbath. That's why we can have doctors and nurses and pharmacists and policemen working on the weekend, and they don't break God's law. But Jesus doesn't argue here that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, even if it is. His argument is much more serious than that. Jesus claims that as God as creator and sustainer of the universe, he is entitled to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath, for he is the one who instituted it in the first place. And the Pharisees don't miss his meaning. They know exactly what he's saying when he tells them, my father is working until now and I am working. In verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, 
making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him that all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. It may be that Jesus took a picture of his childhood and youth here to explain his relationship to God the Father. Think about your childhood. How did you learn to talk? How did you learn to tie your shoelaces? How did you learn to cook? Chances are you began by watching and then imitating your father, your mother. And as you watched, you wanted to try to do it too. So mum and dad showed you how to do it. You did it imperfectly at first, but as your parents showed you how to do it, you began to perfect it until it became second nature. So Jesus grew up the carpenter's son. No doubt he spent many hours in the workshop with Joseph watching and learning how to cut and plane and shape and build and polish furniture. He may have started off by cleaning up the sawdust behind Joseph, but then his father taught him how to swing a hammer and use a saw to build a simple coffee table. And as he got the hang of that, his father showed him more advanced skills and helped him to build kitchen cabinets and lounge chairs and outdoor settings. Joseph, because he loved his son Jesus, showed him all the skills and techniques necessary to be a carpenter. And he didn't just show Jesus how to build the simple things. He showed him how to build the greater things, the more impressive things, things that really showed his ability. Now, I know that's an imperfect picture, <clears throat> but I think it, gives, it helps to get a handle on the relationship that Jesus is describing here. There's an intimacy in his relationship with God the Father that only occurs in a family situation. You don't develop this sort of intimacy by coming to visit. You only develop it by living under the same roof, so to speak. But Jesus, although he is God in the flesh, God by nature, is also fully human. He was born a helpless and dependent baby. When he was a boy growing up, the Bible tells us, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. And Hebrews tells us he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus had to learn to listen to his heavenly father, just like he learned to listen to his earthly father. He had to see what his heavenly father was doing and do likewise. This makes his humanity real. He was truly man. He wasn't just an apparition. He wasn't an angel appearing as man. He wasn't God pretending to be human, as some people would claim. He was really and truly human. He faced all the trials and temptations and frustrations and pain that are common to the human race. But he was more than just a human. He was at one and the same time God. That's exactly the claim that Jesus is making here 
in his conversation with the Jews. And they make no mistake about what it is that Jesus is saying, even if many people today pretend that he was saying something different. To claim to be God is a bold claim if you have nothing to back it up. But as as we've already seen in the first three miracles that John records, Jesus has power over creation. He has power over sickness and disease. We'll see in future miracles that he has power over life and death too. I guess we can understand to some extent the alarm that the Pharisees must have felt about someone claiming to be God. They clung fiercely to the oneness of God. The controlling passage of scripture for their lives was a a passage called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 The Lord is one. The Lord is not two. He is not three. He is not 300 million. The Lord is one. Worshipping other gods had caused tragedy for the Jews in generations past. They'd been starved out of their cities. They'd been captured and exiled to foreign lands for decades. They'd been slaughtered because they had worshipped other gods who were not gods at all. And too many others had claimed to be the Messiah in years gone by, leading many astray. And each one caused them unimaginable pain when they turned out to be another false messiah. Of course, they also remembered back to the disastrous sin of their first ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. Remember how it was that the devil enticed them to eat the forbidden fruit? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Trying to be like God back in the beginning of time caused all the problems that they faced and all the problems that we face today. The Jews knew that and they weren't about to let it happen again. So we can have some sympathy with them for being cautious. But unfortunately, their motivation wasn't only about protecting God's name. They were also jealous to protect their own reputation and their power and their wealth No one and nothing was going to get in the way of that, not even someone claiming to be God in the flesh. Time after time, they demanded miracles from Jesus as proof that he was who he claimed to be. And time after time, they rejected, ignored, or explained away those miracles. And they continued to plot his death. Even the greatest miracle of all, his resurrection from the dead was insufficient to convince them that his claims were true. Truly, there are none so blind as those who will not see. So Jesus so far has claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. He's claimed to be the one who is entitled to do what he wants to do on the Sabbath because he's in charge of it. He claimed that because God worked on the Sabbath, he was entitled to also. Then he claims equality with God by calling God my father. 
my father. The Jews would never dare to call God my father. He was our father. He was our father as a nation. But to claim the sort of intimacy that Jesus was claiming was to make yourself equal with God. Jesus isn't finished yet with his claims, though. The rest of John chapter 5 shows us Jesus making one claim after another about his status as God in the flesh. We'll just cover a few more of them today. In verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Although there are a tiny handful of incidents of people being raised from the dead in the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that the power to bring someone back to life was a delegated power. God granted both Elijah and Elisha, for example, the ability to bring a child, dead child back to life. But it was a power they had to pray to God for. It wasn't a power that they had by nature. Jesus, by contrast, can give life to whom he will. Remember John 1.4 tells us, in him, in the word, in Jesus Christ, was life. Or later in this chapter of John 5.26, it says, the father has granted the son to have life in himself. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. God's judgments will be true and accurate and righteous. For there is no one in the universe who knows the heart of man, who knows man's motivations, his desires. No one knows them like God knows them. And all final judgment has been given to the Son because the Son, as God, is in complete unity with the Father. What the Father thinks, the Son thinks. So the Son's judgments will be exactly what the Father's judgments would be. But didn't Jesus say that he didn't come to condemn, but to save? Didn't he say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's what it says back in John 3.16 and 17. Jesus said that. But he continued in John 3 by saying, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in the son in Jesus Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Jesus came the first time, and he delays his return now, so that you and I may have opportunity to believe in him to put our trust in him. But that opportunity won't last forever. At best, 
it will last while you live, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, whatever it may be. Or he may come back tomorrow. He may come back tomorrow to bring this world to an end and to begin the judgment. If you've not believed in him when that happens, you'll be caught red-handed. It will be too late to change your mind then. For when he returns, the final judgment will begin. And it will be too late to plead for mercy then. If you've not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do it now. For he calls you now to turn to him in faith. And it's not difficult to do. All you need to do is bow your head and tell him, Jesus, I've ignored you and rejected you for too long. I deserve the judgment. I deserve the punishment for my rebellion and my sin. But I ask you, Jesus, for mercy today. I ask you to change my heart, to change my life, to grant me new life. I ask you to rescue me and set me on a new path that leads to life. I want to put my life and my soul and my spirit in your hands from this day on. Would you make me new today, Jesus, I pray. That simple prayer is the first step on the journey of faith that will eventually bring you home, will eventually bring you to your true home with the Father. You have passed from death to life, from death to eternal life. If you've prayed that prayer today, we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch so that we can rejoice with you and help you on this new path. Tell your friends, tell your family that Jesus Christ has made you new. And the result of that simple prayer will be that you too will honour the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So just how do you honour the Son? Firstly, you honour him by believing what he says. For hearing his word implies believing him and believing the one who sent him, believing the Father. Jesus is saying here that it is not possible to claim to believe in God if you reject who Jesus is and what he says about himself. And what are those claims that Jesus makes about himself? Let's briefly recap the claims that Jesus has made about himself in just these few verses. Firstly, as the Father works, so does the Son. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. As the Father raises the dead, so the Son gives life to whoever he wants to. 
The Father has given over all judgment to the Son. And honouring the Father requires honouring the Son. Now those are stupendous claims to make. It's no wonder the Jews thought that he was making himself equal with God. For that is exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus will make plenty more astonishing claims about himself before they finally arrest him, subject him to a rig trial, and execute him as a common criminal. But before that happens, he will claim to be the true bread from heaven, the good shepherd, the gate, resurrection and life, the way, the light of the world, and much, much more. All of those titles harken back to Old Testament descriptions of God himself. All of those titles Jesus claims for himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, if this Jesus is not God, then he dishonours God more than any of us could ever do. And if he is not God, he deserves to be put to death for his blasphemy. But if he is who he claims to be, then we'd better sit up and take notice. We'd better believe him and we'd better trust him and we'd better obey him. We won't get there today, but Jesus goes on in this passage in John 5 to talk a lot about judgment and the consequences of rejecting him. Can a person be saved if he or she doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is God himself? Quite possibly, I think you could be. I doubt that the thief nailed to the cross next to Jesus understood in his dying moments that Jesus was God. He certainly knew that there was something special about Jesus, for he asked Jesus to remember him when Jesus came into his kingdom. But I think it's unlikely that he realised at that point that Jesus is God. I doubt whether he had the theological background to understand what was going on. But not knowing that Jesus is God through ignorance or lack of opportunity to learn the truth is very different to rejecting the truth. And I'm convinced that those who reject the truth that Jesus Christ is truly God have no hope of salvation while they remain convinced of that. That's bad news for many groups and for many religions. It's bad news for those who think that Jesus is merely a good man, a good teacher, a good example. If Jesus' claims about himself aren't true, that he is none of those things. If his claims aren't true, he's a liar, a deceiver, he's deluded, and he's a very, very bad example. It's bad news for those who think that Jesus is a created being. There are cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christadelphians, the Mormons and others that want to believe that they are honouring God by rejecting Jesus' claims to be God. 
But if Jesus is God, as he claims to be, they are instead dishonouring the Father to their judgment. Friends, the JWs and Mormons are not your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not, in fact, Christians. Rather, rather they are sadly deceived and they need the truth no less than an outright unbeliever, an atheist needed. This is bad news. If Jesus' claims are true, it's bad news for all the other religions as well. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Tao, Hinduism, Baha'i, many, many more. They all reject Jesus' claim to be God. Or at best, they add him to their collection of so-called gods to worship. For some, he is anything but God. For others, he is just another minor deity amongst thousands, maybe millions of gods that they have in their collection to suit their purposes. But Jesus Christ is not just one God amongst many. He is the only true God. All the others are not gods at all. They're idols and figments of the imagination. If you reject Jesus, you reject the only path to salvation. How can you honour the Father if you reject the Son he sent for your rescue? Your opinion about Jesus is also your opinion about the Father. If you reject Jesus, you reject all hope. So what will you do with this man, this God, this Jesus Christ? Is he a liar, a blasphemer, an enemy of God? If he is, the Jews got it right and you do well to reject him. But that's not who he claims to be. And if his claims hold any water, if what I've been telling you about him today is true, then you no longer have any excuse to reject him. I have told you plainly, and he claims it boldly, that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh. Now you're without excuse on that fearsome day of judgment to come. You cannot say, no one told me. One day, whether willingly or unwillingly, you will obey the Father's command to honour the Son. One day, every knee will bow before him. Every knee will bow before the Son. Whether those on earth, in heaven, or even in the grave, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question for you is, will you be bowing in delight in the presence of your Lord, your Master, your Saviour, your King, your God? Or will you be bowing in anger and rebellion and disgrace before your judge and jury and executioner. Make no mistake, you will be bowing. 
The choice is yours to make today, whether you will be bowing as you pass from death to eternal life, or whether you will be bowing then as you pass from death to eternal death. For those who hear Jesus' words and believe the Father, do not come into judgment, but have already passed from death to life. Those who have done that have, present tense, eternal life now. And they are secure for eternity. What will be your decision about Jesus Christ? Will you put your trust in him today? Let's close in prayer. Father, your son, Jesus Christ, makes no bones about who he is in the Gospels. He goes through his ministry and he goes to that cross proclaiming that he is God in the flesh, that he is the saviour of the world. And yet those he came to would not receive him. They rejected him for every proof he provided. They found a, uh, an answer, a response that rejected him. There was nothing that Jesus could say or do that would change their hard hearts. But Lord, you went, Jesus, you went to that cross never once stepping back from the accusation that you were making yourself equal with God. For Jesus, you truly are God. And Lord, I pray for my friends here. I pray for all who would hear this at some time in the future. Lord, that you would open their eyes to the truth that you are none other than God in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, as the creeds tell us, crucified, buried, resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know who you are, who haven't yet put their trust in you, Lord, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you in repentance and in faith for eternal life, for a life that will never be taken away. And I pray, Lord, for those various religions that reject the Godhood of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would tear down their barriers, that you would tear down their arguments to reveal yourself to them. We pray for their salvation, Lord. We pray for their rescue from rebellion against you. And we pray, Lord, that you will be our King of glory at all times, Lord. When times are tough and we're struggling with doubt, Lord, would you remind us that you 
are the king of glory. You are the God of gods. And would you encourage us, Lord, by your ability to give life to the dead, to give life to our struggling hearts, our weak faith, to fan our faith into flame, Lord. And would you give us the assurance of our salvation, our eternal salvation, so when that great and terrifying day of judgment comes, we will be found to stand without condemnation, for there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, for those who have put their trust in you. And Lord, we welcome that day when we stand in your presence because you have promised, Lord, to save us from sin and death and punishment and we trust you, Lord, for that. So Jesus, we rejoice that you are equal with God precisely as you claim to be. And we trust you, Lord, in all things, in your mighty and amazing name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.